folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. Good, chilly, snowy morning, everybody. Welcome to the History and Theology of the Scots Confessions. Um, You all, or some of you will, I'm sure, remember last year when I told you we were going to look at all of 1 Timothy and then we spent three weeks on the first two verses. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I'm being very ambitious in terms of time management for this class because I'm going to try to do history and theology. So what I'm hoping to do is the first 20-25 minutes each week on some of the history and background stuff, and then the second 20-25 minutes on the confession itself. So that's what we're going to try to do if we can. And I've just kind of spread out some of the historical background stuff over the course of weeks uh, just so that we can get into the confession instead of trying to do all of that for a couple weeks and then all the confession for a couple weeks. We'll just kind of do it together along the way. So we've got books of confession spread across the room. We're looking at the Scots Confession, which is the oldest reformational confession that we have in our book of confessions. Uh, we've got the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in there. And which one do they put first? Does anybody remember? Do they put the Nicene Creed first? Because that's what they should do. Good, they did. Look at that. Um, Does anybody remember what the main difference between the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed are in terms of how they were used in the church? Does anybody know? We don't use them this way, but uh, today. The Apostles' Creed um, is a baptismal creed. So it was the creed that you recited uh, and were taught when you were preparing for baptism and then recited during the process of your baptism. That's why it says, I believe. The Nicene Creed says, we believe. So that's the Eucharistic Creed that was used in the service of worship as they celebrated the Lord's Supper in the ancient church, which you weren't allowed to do until you were baptized. So in the ancient church, uh, you could be a member of the community, you could be preparing for baptism, Uh, And you would attend the church service and things, but when it came time for the Lord's Supper, you had to leave. So you could be there for the reading of scripture, you could be there for the preaching, you had to leave for the Lord's Supper until you were baptized. And then after you had said, I believe, in the baptismal font, you got to say, we believe at the table. So that's the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. And then the next confession in our book is the Scots Confession, because it's the oldest Reformation confession that we have. So the Heidelberg uh, Catechism that's in there is another really important one that's been influential. The Westminster documents have been really influential, especially in English-speaking Reformed churches, Presbyterianism. Uh, The Heidelberg is kind of like the Westminster, but in Europe, like in terms of comparative influence. Uh, But I really like the Scots Confession for a number of reasons, and I'll hopefully get to a few of them by the end of uh, the first half this morning. But... I want to start just by talking about what, confession, what kind of things confessions are in the Reformed tradition, because there's differences depending on what branch of Christianity you're located in, exactly how confessions function, how you use them, and so on. So I just want to kind of set up the different approaches of uh, the Catholic tradition, the Lutheran tradition, and the Reformed tradition, 
just as a bit of a framework. So in the Catholic tradition, um, you have a, a kind of tripartite structure, and it develops over time, but basically you have three different pieces that go into how you set up your Christian life and belief. Scripture is the foundational important piece, but then you also have tradition, which is viewed as kind of a second ongoing source along with Scripture. And then you have the magisterium, or the teaching office of the church, which tells you exactly how Scripture and tradition interact and how you should interpret them on key points. So you've got kind of those three pieces up and running. So, uh, when you look at confessions or the ecumenical creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and some of those other statements, uh, they are distinct from but connected to Scripture. But kind of, they have their own authority that's located in the authority of the Apostles that then gets handed on through the Church, through history, by way of the bishops. So, the idea is that Jesus' disciples had authority from Jesus, and then they pass that on to the people who replace them in the next generation and on down the line. And that's how you can um, be sure that the gospel that's been handed down through history is the true one. And that helps you make your determinations between how to interpret scripture and tradition and so on. So the creeds and confessions in the Catholic tradition are part of that ongoing teaching office of the church and living tradition. Now, all of this ends up resulting in something called dogma, which in our society is a four-letter word in many ways. Um, but the basic idea is that there are certain pieces of belief and practice that the church is 100% sure about. Like it's not really up for debate anymore. So, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity is considered dogma, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Um, another one would be uh, the two natures of Christ, that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Right? These are pieces of dogma. Um, there are some in the Catholic tradition related to Mary. Right? Three pieces of dogma related to Mary. The Immaculate Conception, which is neither about a football catch nor Jesus' birth, but it's about Mary's <coughs> conception. Uh, there's the Assumption of Mary. The idea that she did not die, but like, what's the story in, the, in Genesis? Is it Methuselah who gets translated straight up to heaven? They send a chariot for him and pick him up and take him off uh, instead of having to die. So Mary gets the same kind of treatment, the assumption of Mary, and then also Mary's perpetual virginity. So those are three dogmas associated with Mary. So there are these few, relatively few uh, theological positions that the teaching office of the church has said we're 100% sure about these, we're not really talking about them anymore in terms of whether or not they're true. We're pretty sure. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so here is how um, the Catholic Catechism defines the teaching office of the church in relation to these things. Okay, so this is a quote. The church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas. And now it's going to tell us what it means to define a dogma. That is, when it proposes truths contained in divine revelation, scripture, not this one, this one, or having a necessary connection with them in a form obliging the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith. 
So, if you're Catholic and the magisterium defines a dogma in order to be a good Catholic, good Christian, you have to believe that dogma. So that's kind of how it works in the Catholic tradition in terms of teaching authority and these kinds of permanent theological statements. Does that make basic sense? Okay. So Lutheranism. Um, there are a few characteristics of confessions in the Lutheran tradition. They're ecumenical. They have a united interpretation. They treat confessions as symbols. There's a certain kind of authority and obligation that goes with that. So to call them ecumenical, I mean, what we're really talking about in the Lutheran tradition is the Augsburg Confession. And what I'm going to say about the Lutheran tradition is kind of true up to the middle of the 20th century. Um, does anybody know our friends, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America? Like they're friends of us in the PCUSA. Um, it doesn't hold in the same way for them anymore, um, but the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church would still very much have this kind of an approach to confessions. But the Augsburg Confession, what was that, 1530, 1531 is when that was nailed down, um, is the key confession for them. And it's considered a public rather than a private document. And that's not uh, the difference between an individual or a group document. It's thinking about the connection between the church and the state. Because the German context is the Holy Roman Empire. And the Augsburg Confession were the Protestants saying, OK, here's our version of Christianity, offering it to the emperor, Charles the Fifth. I believe at the time, my little his historian over here, uh, who then got to decide whether or not it was going to be tolerated within the Holy Roman Empire, right? So uh, it has this kind of empire significance. It's going to be an official public brand of Christianity in the empire. We never have anything like that in the Reformed tradition. So that's one thing. It's public, and it attempts to be universal. What the Augsburg Confession is trying to say is this is Christianity, as we understand it, applicable to everybody. So, you know, very ambitious in that statement. So, uh, they are arguing that this is an acceptable form of Christianity in the empire. It's public. It's ecumenical. That means it has to have united interpretation. That was the second characteristic I said. All other Lutheran theology is understood as explaining the Augsburg Confession. Even Luther's stuff that he wrote, right, before and after the Augsburg Confession is, in terms of official Lutheran theology, just the best interpretations of what went into the Augsburg Confession. So this confession has a, uh, a validity and a significance for all times and places for the Lutheran Church. It is the standard. And so everybody is working to interpret the Augsburg Confession. And in that sense, it's a symbol in the same sense that the ancient creeds are symbolic as representing in a kind of at least semi-permanent way Christianity, standing in as a symbol for everything that it means to be Christian and to believe as Christian. So again, that kind of universal view. They're trying to express a common theological heritage that belongs to the whole church, and that's why it's public and ecumenical in the ways that we were talking about, because they're setting up the symbol of Christianity as a whole. And given that they view it as this kind of a symbol, it has a certain kind of authority, right? Because if you're going to set up the symbol that you think accurately represents Christianity as a whole, you're probably going to take it kind of seriously. Right, or at least going to want to. 
So, the Augsburg Confession is not meant to be changed or replaced. You don't add other confessions like we do. You don't go back in and change some of the language because the German language has moved on, right? It's a permanent thing, once and for all. And it has a special kind of relationship to Scripture. The idea is that it's um, giving you an authoritative interpretation of Scripture. So Scripture stands behind it, but if you're going to be a good Lutheran on this reading, you should only be reading Scripture through the lens of the Augsburg Confession, so that the theology given to you in the Augsburg Confession is shaping your interpretation of Scripture in a definitive way, in a definite way. So all uh, teaching, then, of Scripture needs to come through the lens of the Augsburg Confession. And therefore, um, we're talking about a kind of quantitative rather than qualitative distinction between the Confession and Scripture, right? There's more words in Scripture than there are in the Confession, but the Confession is a faithful guide to all those words. So there's not really a hard and fast distinction where Scripture is more authority and the Confession is less authority. It's just that there's more of Scripture and the Confession helps you make sense of that more of Scripture in a more concise way. Does that make basic sense? Okay. So in terms of obligation, if you're teaching theology in the Lutheran context, you are obligated to teach it according to the Augsburg Confession. Right? You should not be coming up with any other theories. You should not be mixing in anything from those crazy neighbors that you have next door who are reformed. Right? None of that. We have to just teach theology according to the Augsburg Confession in ever more um, Baroque and convoluted and Byzantine permutations of it right? as they deal with different conceptual issues that they address. So it's a binding theological text that judges all Lutheran theology. Right? So uh, uh, until recently, or in certain contexts still recently, if you uh, really don't like somebody and you want to get them in trouble and you try to find something that they say that you can argue is against the Augsburg Confession, right? So that's kind of the Lutheran approach to confessions and the importance of the Augsburg. There's other documents that have been important. There's uh, something called the um, Formula of Concord where a bunch of people had to get together about 50 years after the Augsburg Confession and say, okay, here's how we understand the Augsburg Confession together, right? So there's some other layers, but it's ultimately about the Augsburg. But who actually wrote that document? Who are the authors? Um, Luther is importantly behind it, but it also had a lot of influence from Philip Melanchthon. Um, Luther was an outlaw in the Holy Roman Empire uh, and could not attend the imperial diet or conference. Um, where it was presented, so Melanchthon had to take it, and then it went through some revisions and things. So um, Luther and Melanchthon are the primary hands involved. The formula of Concord was the brainchild of um, Martin Chemnitz, who's important uh, Lutheran, and it's often said in the Lutheran tradition that the first Martin would not have endured without the second Martin. All right, so. If that's how the Catholics and the Lutherans do it, well, what about us in the Reformed tradition? Well, first off, if the Lutherans viewed their confessions as ecumenical, we Reformed do not view them as ecumenical. Uh, we have never had the sort of empire context 
that uh, the Lutheran traditions had. And, I mean, we've had churches that have been inside the British Empire. You can argue about the American Empire. But there has never been the same official religion relationship between Reformed churches and the state that you had uh, in the German context. So different socio-political context. So we never, as the Reformed, really had that temptation to try to say, you know, we're going to make a once-for-all statement. It just wasn't an option on the table. So uh, we never really tried to reproduce the ancient church's church and state situation with these universally binding councils and creeds. Uh, and then the other thing that went into it is in the Reformed tradition, we have a really highly developed historical consciousness. And this comes because of a Renaissance humanism and how it feeds into the beginning of our tradition. We're very aware of history and how things develop through history. And so one of the things that the uh, Reformed tradition, uh, tradition did in the earliest days was to look at the ancient church and say, you know, that relationship that everybody thought was the case there wasn't actually there, right? It's kind of a later construct, and so they weren't tempted by it just because they knew it was kind of a bedtime story, right? So instead of that kind of temptation to a universally binding ecumenical statement, Reformed confessions were tied only to particular places at particular times, even to the level of cities, particular cities, because the Reformed tradition, uh, the Reformation of, uh, in that tradition proceeded by way of particular cities in a lot of cases, especially in Switzerland, the Low Countries, sometimes at the level of nation, like we get with the Scots Confession. There's an early French Confession uh, in the Reformed tradition. But again, specific times and places and peoples and they had to defend their statements through appeal to scripture. They had to be able to persuade people that these were compelling. They couldn't just say, oh, it's what the emperor said, right? You couldn't just appeal to that kind of authority in most cases. So they're not ecumenical, they're very, very particular. And so there's this singularity involved in Reformed confessions where each of them stands alone in its context but also as part of a family of confessions uh, in all of these many different contexts. So instead of having one Augsburg confession that was good for Germans or Lutherans throughout Germany, we've got half a dozen Reformed confessions from Switzerland and France and England in the, early, uh, the first century of the Reformation, right? because they each had to do it for themselves and confess what it was that they believed. And this is, again, I, mean, I talked about the Missouri Synod Lutherans. There are some forms of Presbyterians in America who kind of reject this approach, who still very much want to lift up the Westminster Confession, for instance, as the Presbyterian Confession for all times and places, right? Um, PCUSA is not one of these groups, thankfully, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but you get uh, this quote that I'm going to read to you from Karl Barth, about uh, how this dynamic works between, oh, and I dropped down one. This is not from Karl Barth. This is from a guy named John McLeod, so a good Scott, uh, talking to us about the Reformed tradition and how uh, in the Reformed tradition, confess it's, the confessions are all about confessional freedom for each congregation in each city in each country rather than any kind of unity and force from the top down. So this is what John McLeod says about theology in the Reformed tradition. The only thing one cannot do is to argue to oneself or to others that one's confession is the Reformed confession. 
Reformed confessions, as long and to the extent that they are reformed, will always be many and not one. So, historical particularity, singularity, and they're not symbolic. That's the next point. So if the Augsburg Confession is this snapshot symbol for everything that is Christianity, Reformed Confessions do not operate that way. They're one church's attempt to explain their faith, to bear witness to what they believe in, nothing more. Bound to the particular spatio-temporal time uh, or uh, context that they are produced in. And so these efforts quickly become primarily of historical significance, right? So take our Confession of 67. Has anybody read that? Looked at that in our Book of Confessions? It's a really interesting document. And I, I, if you look at it, I think you'll realize, even if you didn't know it was from 67, that the context is North American civil rights movement, right? It's pretty obvious when you read the document. And so it becomes of historical significance as a snapshot from that period for where was the church at this time, right? And there's still good stuff in there, and I've used it in, in a number of contexts, but it's not really now, right? So there's this historical character uh, to Reformed confessions where we don't need to worry about updating them necessarily. If we really need one, we make another one, right? That captures, captures things now and says what we need to say now, which is why a few years ago, what did we do? We adopted a new confession, the Belhar Confession, originally produced in South Africa, written in 1984, right, about racial unity, or in that context, disunity and why you need unity, right? And so we all felt in our context, it's probably a word we need to hear. And so we included that. So we have that freedom to open up the Book of Confessions, move things in and out according to what is uh, what we feel is saying something that we need to hear right now or that needs to be said right now. So they're not symbolic. And in that sense, they're provisional, right? They're always temporary. They are not once for all. They're just the best we can do right now. And they're fundamentally and necessarily replaceable, if you need to. Okay, the Belhar was in 84? Uh-huh. When was the brief statement of faith? 99. Thank you. So I noticed Yep. We adopted it in what, 2016? Yes. Yeah. So if there's a new one of these, that would be it. Yeah. And you can go onto the uh, PCUSA website and download the PDF of the new edition. Also, that relationship between the confessions and scripture. Part of what it means that our confessions are provisional is they're always open to correction from scripture. And a number of the confessions just come out and say this at some point in the confession. Uh, for the Scots Confession, it's in the preface. Uh, and this is what the preface says. I just love it. If any man or woman will note in our confession any chapter or sentence contrary to God's word, that it would please him or her of his or her gentleness and for Christians' charity's sake to inform us of it in writing, and we, upon our honor, do promise him that by God's grace we shall give him satisfaction from the mouth of God that is from Holy Scripture, or else we shall alter whatever he can prove to be wrong. So if you think we got we something wrong, it. make the argument, and we'll either prove you wrong or change it, right? Based on this process of biblical interpretation. 
So always provisional and open to being changed based on a fresh hearing of Scripture. And so in terms of commitment to the confessions, uh, church con- the church confesses in serious moments, and so the confessions need to be taken seriously, right? It's what we thought we had to say in these serious moments. They are public in the sense that they are communal, not just one individual, but a group of Christians putting it together. And so they are guidelines for the communal life of faith. Right? They can function in all these ways, but ultimately they are an appeal to Scripture. It's an attempt to say, this is what we hear God speaking to us through Scripture. And so they are always uh, taken seriously as interpretations of Scripture, but never more than as interpretations of Scripture. And only insofar as they are judged to be faithful interpretations of Scripture. So, for instance, I was just joking about their uh, gender non-inclusive pronouns, right? So, according to how we now hear Scripture today, we would want to say, eh, it's not quite faithful in those pieces. We need to hear something different today. So that's just broadly on the confessions and the traditions. Okay, I've already blown through 25 minutes, <laughs> but I want to talk real quickly about the Scots Confession itself in a little more detail, um, just so that we have kind of a baseline. The Scottish Parliament called for an accounting of what the Reforming Party uh, believed in 1560. And so that's the context that produced the Scots Confession. You had all of this uh, reformational foment, you had the previous regent queen who just died and the new queen on a ship on the way. So what do you do in the meantime? You get a confession in, right? Catholic regent just died, Catholic queen on the way, get that confession in through parliament. It was written by, and I've got their last names, three or four of them were named John, uh, but Winram, Spotswood, Douglas, Rowell, Willock, and Knox were the primary authors. And they wrote it in less than a week. Uh, They'd been preparing ahead of time. They knew it was coming, but they had to write it in about a week. And so it was kind of the Reforming Party's manifesto. This is is the deal. This is what we're about. It's not very technical. It's very non-academic in the way that it's written. And this is kind of why I like it. Uh, because, I mean, I enjoy doing the academic stuff. It's my day job, but I also like just talking about this stuff, and the Scots Confession kind of fits in with that genre better than some other confessions uh, do. It's much more lively and conversational. You could almost hear it being, you know, spoken in a lot of places than some of the other confessions. All of the writers were working theologians, pastors and evangelistic preachers and things like that. None of them were academics. Uh, None of them were teaching theologians. Uh, And Knox was the only one who had an international reputation. But it was for being kind of a hothead. And we'll we'll see more about that uh, later on. So in that sense, it's a very human document. It has a lot of humanity in the texture when you read it. Uh, A lot of uh, oral delivery you can hear uh, behind it. And in that sense, I think it's probably the quintessential Reformed Confession. Because again, it's all about this particular place and time, this particular reforming group of people and how they understand things, and they're just doing the best that they can to get this out and in front of people. What's it like? Um, it has a lot of attention to mission. Matthew 24:14 was printed on the frontispiece 
uh, kind of like inside the title page when it was published. And that is the verse, and this is the Old English uh, version of it. And this glad tidings of the kingdom shall be preached throughout the whole world. It's whole without a W. Whole world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Right? But as a witness before all nations. It's kind of got this uh, preaching character to it as a confession. And this is in keeping with the identities of all the, the authors who are all preaching theologians primarily. And there's this dynamism and life, liveliness in there. It's theology in the service of that proclamation, which is a shift in how theology is done from the Middle Ages onward, which is very much uh, a logical exercise. This is not so much concerned with logic and syllogisms and all of that kind of stuff, uh, but much more what theology helps you preach in a compelling way that communicates what you need to communicate to the people who are hearing you, right? Very much a preaching theology. So the focus is on knowing God through Jesus rather than any kind of abstract logical considerations. We'll see that in a few minutes, Lord willing, when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity and see how they move through that. And then um, there's aspects of interpretation, definition, and worship involved. So interpretation of scripture as a way to, quote-unquote, maintain the purity of, the, of Christ's gospel. That's a line that comes from the preface. It's an attempt at self-definition. So this is more from the preface. It's a response to, quote, different rumors which Satan spreads to silence, uh, and then also it's intended, quote, to silence impudent blasphemers who boldly condemn that which they have not heard and do not understand. <laughs> So uh, they're trying to define themselves rather than just letting their enemies define what they're about. But then it's also a matter of worship, worship of God through professing faith in God. So here's another line from the preface, quote, For we are completely convinced that whoever denies Jesus Christ or is ashamed of him in the presence of men shall be denied before the Father and before his holy angels. So as part of their own belief and practice and piety, they felt they needed to confess this stuff publicly, right? So that's kind of where the Scots Confession is coming from. All right, I'm only five minutes late. That's pretty good. <laughs> so let's flip open the Confession and look at some of these uh, chapters here. And the plan, there's 25 chapters in here, and we've got five weeks. So the plan is going to be five chapters a week if you're reading along at home. And I'll try to print out um, a few copies of the Confession uh, next week as well to supplement the copies that we've got around the table. It's 11 in mine, but look for 3.01 at the top. The Book of Confessions, each confession has a numerical designation, and then you have the paragraph designation. So if you're looking at that first page of the Scots Confession, it's 3.01-0.03. So that's for Confession 3, chapters 1 through 3, and that's what you see starting on that page. So that's how you can track that stuff across multiple editions of the Book of Confessions. Okay, chapter one, God. We confess and acknowledge one God alone to whom we must worship, uh, to whom alone we must cleave, and whom alone we must serve, whom only we must worship, and in whom alone we put our trust. Not a bad opener. Not at all. Um, does it make anybody think of any Bible verses? There's one in particular it makes me think of. In the Jewish tradition, it's called the Shema. 
Uh, Shema is the Hebrew word for the word hear in the imperative, like listen up. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In our translations these days, it usually says, hear the Lord your God, the Lord alone. Um, and then it moves on to the next verse. It's one of those, you know, serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength verses, right? And I can't help but see that as a template for what they're saying here. They're like, There's one, listen to the one God. We're going to cleave to that one God. We're going to serve that one God. We're going to worship that one God. We're going to trust that one God. Which I think is interesting. Uh, in the Reformed tradition, we have a closer relationship with the Old Testament on average than any other Christian tradition. And we're going to see that coming through, and I'll talk about it with Knox specifically at a few points. Um, But very much the Reformed theological imagination is funded by the Old Testament and by studying Hebrew and then reading it in Hebrew and having this back and forth uh, with the Jewish tradition. So I find it highly significant that we take the the opening of the Scots Confession here, and it matches up in many, many ways with the quintessential faith statement of the Jewish tradition. We'll have some other more problematic relationships to the Jewish tradition later on. (laughs) So we've got one God uh, who is eternal, infinite, immeasurable, incomprehensible, omnipotent, invisible. Classic attributes of God, Uh, I won't belabor my qualms with some of them, given an updated philosophical environment, but we we still argue about these things. At the time, though, they did not argue about these things, and that's the important point. So what the Scots Confession is doing is saying, look, uh, all of you uh, Catholic tradition people, we think the same thing about God's attributes as you do. So don't hate us for this stuff, right? You can't get us on this. And then it goes on, one in substance and yet distinct in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So there's your doctrine of the Trinity, one line, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to explain it anymore. They're just taking the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Trinity as read. They're saying there's enough already in the shared Christian understanding of these things that all we need to do is signal that we're not deviating from it and move on. So the Scots Confession isn't trying to tell us anything new about the doctrine of God. That's not where the focus is. And they're going through the motions here to say, yeah, we agree with everybody about these things. No arguments here. Right? By whom we confess and believe all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, to have been created. That sound like some uh, language we've heard before? From the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creeds? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To be retained in their being, now we're off script a little bit, to be retained in their being and to be ruled and guided by his inscrutable providence. So not only does God create, but God sustains in being, right? The basic idea is that if it was not for God continuing to uphold creation, sin would mean that we'd ultimately cease to exist. The kind of disorder that's come in through sin would lead to the destruction of creation. But God, instead, sustains creation, continues to give it life and existence. So not only creates, but retains, and then also rules, right? Nothing happens that God is not somehow aware of, in control of, overseeing. And that's the doctrine of providence, the inscrutable providence. Inscrutable providence, right? We're not going to understand every piece of it. 
some of it's going to look awful odd. <laughs> but the Scots Confession wants us to know that no matter what's happening to us or around us, we can be confident that God is ultimately the one in control of it. And that's really the pastoral point, right? Now, this can get perverted really easily so that you say things like, oh, that tragic thing that happened is just part of God's plan, right? right. Yeah, a little bit bad pastoral theology there. Uh, but it's a different thing to say to somebody who's suffering, you know, God is with you in this moment, right? And the world has not spun out of God's control, right? That's the intention. And all of this is guided by God's eternal wisdom, goodness, justice, and it's ultimately directed to the end of God's glory. And this is something we see a lot in the Reformed confessional tradition. When it ultimately comes down to it, you ask the question, why? Right? Mm -hmm. And when we're asking the question, why, about human things, in theological terms, the answer is always, well, because God. Right? But then you start asking, well, why God X? And in the Reformed tradition, you say, it's because of God's glory. Somehow the sense of God's glory and um, human beings in the created world recognizing God's glory, appreciating God's glory, and responding appropriately to God's glory is the ultimate end or reason for why things happen and God does things. I would tend to want to say love. And, I, and there's other strands of the Reformed tradition that say, yeah, but if we're talking about God's glory, we really just mean that God loves human beings and wanted X, Y, or Z and wanted people to be in relationship with God and so on. So uh, there's many ways in which God's glory becomes another way to speak about God's love. Mm -hmm. But the language that you find in the confessions is glory, primarily. That's chapter one. <laughs> Not off to a bad start. Answering all kinds of big picture issues here with chapter one. Chapter two is about the creation of man. Sorry, ladies, once again, you're left out. We confess and acknowledge that our God has created man, i.e., our first father, Adam, after his own image and likeness, etc. Notice that we don't hear about women or woman until things go wrong. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so, this would be another point when perhaps we'd want to hear scripture afresh uh, alongside the Scots Confession. So, for instance, uh, when it says that Adam is created after God's image and likeness, if you actually look at Genesis 1, specifically verse 26, you'll see that the, the creation of humanity in God's image and likeness is specifically said to be both male and female. So this is one that I would have had to write in with my proofs from Scripture and to convince exactly. them to change, right? Because <laughs> they're, they're missing some pieces there. Uh, but still we hear about uh, God giving wisdom, lordship, justice, free will, self-consciousness uh, to humanity, and that there's no imperfection there. So anything that goes wrong is not God's fault, right? <laughs> God didn't build in any kind of a bug that then manifested itself. There was no imperfection. It was all exactly how it should be until human beings just messed it up, right? And in the Christian tradition, we talk about this being literally absurd. There's literally no rationale for why human beings messed it up. It's just this deep perversity that springs from the human heart. <laughs> and perhaps we're all familiar with that from our own lives, one way or the other. 
So from this dignity and perfection, man and woman both fell. We get them both there. And watch this. The woman being deceived by the serpent and the man obeying the voice of the woman. Right? Which is how the story goes. <laughs> Problematically. But, but look at the parallel. Like the, Eve, the snake gets to the woman and the woman gets to the man. Right? It's the same sin. Just like in, in a specific order. And they're both conspiring against the sovereign majesty of God. Look at that language, sovereign majesty, while the queen is on the ship, Mm -hmm. right? Like, this is royal language. Mm -hmm. And so throughout the Scots Confession, we hear about God's sovereignty and God's majesty. And the whole idea is to remind people that there is a king above whoever happens to be king or queen of Scotland right now, Mm -hmm. right? So you over and over in the Scots Confession, you get God depicted as a king, king with a capital K, who in clear words had previously threatened death if they presumed to eat of the forbidden tree. They should have known better. It's not God's fault. He made it very clear, right? <laughs> Until that snake and that woman and you know, so on. <laughs> Such a bad story. And that moves on to chapter 3 on original sin. Of course, there's that fun one-liner about there are no original sins. They've all been done before. By this transgression, generally known as original sin, the image of God was utterly defaced in man. Again, we stopped hearing about Eve. And he and his children, his children, became by nature hostile to God, slaves to Satan, and servants to sin. Now, utterly defaced. The image of God became utterly defaced, right? Every bit of it was defaced. But what does the word defaced make us think of? If we were thinking about how something was defaced, like we said, the the St. Louis Arch was defaced last night, right? We would think something like graffiti. Does that destroy the arch? Is the arch still there? Yeah, it's just messed up. And if it's utterly defaced, that means every piece of it is messed up. There's no piece of it that you can find that is not somehow compromised. So it's not that all the goodness that God builds in, in creation, is somehow gone. But it's no longer perfect. Each bit of it is compromised. So it's as if we had a glass of water here, and I took a drop of some kind of a nerve agent and dropped it in there, right? Would anybody want to drink from that glass of water? Because there's still plenty of good H2O in there, right? But it's all thoroughly contaminated. And it's going to be quite the process to get it decontaminated, right? So that's the kind of logic we're dealing with here. It's not that the goodness is entirely gone. It's that there's no piece of it that you can trust. Any aspect of it is going to just lead to further sin and evil, right? Utterly defaced. And so when it says, by nature, hostile to God, we have to understand nature in a particular way. Now, in our day and age, we think about nature as the pretty world outside, especially once you get away from the cities, right? But another way to use nature is to talk about human nature, right? what it means to be human. 
And so it's telling us that human nature is hostile to God. Well, it's not human nature how God made human nature, right? That's the caveat. Because human nature, how God made human nature was perfect. Then we messed it up so that human nature, insofar as we interact with it today, is, by definition, hostile to God. So whenever we see in the Reformed tradition, this is the same language that Paul uses in the New Testament. When he talks about spirit versus nature, it's not nature as created, it's nature as messed up by sin. Right? So everlasting death has had and shall have power and dominion over all who have not been, are not, or shall not be reborn from above. This rebirth is brought by the power of the Holy, wrought by the power of the Holy Ghost, creating in the hearts of God's chosen ones, chosen ones, doctrine of election, right? We can look forward to that in a later chapter. Chosen ones, an assured faith in the promise of God revealed to us in his word. By this faith we grasp Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, with the graces and blessings promised in him. So promise as an important category. This is actually showing Lutheran influence to us here. Because in Luther, it's promise, 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 promise. And faith grabs hold of the promise. Faith is what the Holy Spirit does to connect us to the promise. We get the same kind of logic in Calvin. Um, it's not a super popular position, but I always think of Calvin as Luther's greatest disciple. Of course, that you know the Reformed people are truer to Lutheran, Luther than the Lutherans are, but that's my own little argument with the Lutherans. Um, but this whole idea of faith in the promise, grasping Christ through faith, and all of this being the work of the Holy Spirit. Real quick, chapters 4 and chapters 5. We just heard about the promise, and now we're going to hear uh, about the revelation of the promise, right? Where did we hear about the promise? How do we know about the promise? And we find that it was made uh, when God seeks Adam again, again forgetting that Eve is there, at the time as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we, we know this passage, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, right, from the, the curses that God gives uh, in Genesis chapter 3. In the Reformed tradition, we call this the Proto-Evangelion, uh, the foreshadowing of the gospel, basically. And the idea in the Reformed tradition is that from that point, the people of God, in this case, uh, the forebears of ancient Israel, right, have known everything they need to know about how God is going to defeat Satan and sin from that moment. And that it's handed down through that whole period um, by those who are faithful to God in God's covenant people. And so then Christians are included in that long line just after the fact rather than before the fact, right? And so in chapter 5, we hear about the continuance, increase, and preservation of the kirk, the church. But notice that it doesn't talk about what we would actually call the church until, like, the very last sentence of that long chapter, right? Till the Messiah came, it says. All of this is about the Old Testament, about the Jewish community, about the Jewish covenant community. All of this, as far as the Scots Confession is concerned, is God's church. Those who are faithful among the covenant community. Now, there's all kinds of problematic ways that they are going to define faithfulness in a way different than that covenant community would define it for itself, then and now, right? But the point they're trying to make is that Christians are tied in with the people of God who were, are the Jews, 
in an important way. Now this goes off the rails because too often um, we act like the Jews today are no longer right. part of that community. And so we talk about the Old Testament, we, never, we forget that they're actually the Jewish scriptures first and foremost, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we get this kind of replacement theology, it's called supersessionism, where the church has superseded Israel. Used to be Israel, but not anymore, mm -hmm. now it's us kind of thing. We want to avoid that logic, and unfortunately some of it's in here. Um, but the broader point to say that we as Christians see ourselves in continuity with God's covenant people, the Jews, that's an important point. And we are only four, three minutes over, and we're going to stop, and we actually covered what I planned to cover today. So I am super excited. <laughs> Hopefully it will continue like this throughout the series. Thank you all. Um, again, I am going to try to bring some printouts of the Scots Confessions for us next week to supplement the books. But like I said... Uh, if you go to the PCUSA website, you can download the PDF uh, for the Book of Confessions and have it that way as well. So uh, thank you all, and I'll see you next week. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am and hopefully will remain Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell. But the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts.